Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Ilona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Um, somebody asked an excellent question, speaking of marketing. Thank you for the question. Um, what is your feeling of that point scale without mentioning names about the point system? And how does it affect your business? So who wants to tackle that part? Uh, that's a perfect <laughs> <laughs> I feel it is like a good question for winemakers. There's something going on today. It's just big flows. Uh, we'd love it if the winemakers can take that one. Uh-huh. You know, I, I, maybe I'll start. I, I look at uh, the point system as um, uh, you know a, a really fantastic way to, to help uh, people pre you know precast what they're thinking about a wine. Um, it's not the only way that I think people should look about uh, um, trying a new wine or evaluating a wine, um, but uh, I, I can see the value in some of that for a consumer that um, that knows a reviewer, knows what they like. Um, after you've tasted 20 or 30 of their recommendations, you start to have a similar palate. So it's, it's been a really great tool, I think, for us. Um, I have a lot of clients where we, we make a lot of 100-point wines. Um, Mike, I'm sure you do as well. Um, and, you know, in some cases, they may be looking for that. Um, in other cases, it may just come out of, out of uh, you know, true authenticity. They, they weren't looking for it, but it's a great thing to have um, as well. Uh, I think in most cases, we're all excited when we get high points because that means somebody's praising you know, what we do. Um, but I think it can be a danger uh, for people if, if they use it uh, to, to really rely on the sole source of, of getting their message out about their wine. Um, to me, what's more authentic is a, is a connection with the people that work there. Um, uh, yes, the score is great, but but you know somebody, you know somebody works there, you know their story about what they put into that product, um, and oftentimes uh, if you just let scores be the driver, you might miss out on some really fantastic wines. Um, but I, I, I tend to work with people that want all sorts of different things, and I've never had anybody say, "Oh, great, we got this 98 point wine." Um, that's the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Um, you know, right. so everybody's always happy to get it, but. Not everybody is always looking uh, to, to get it. Yeah, and I, I agree with what, what Garrett said, you know, in terms of the value of it if you understand who the reviewer is, uh-huh. you know, and, and you put those scores in context, you know, whoever that reviewer is, sure. they're kind of doing some of your homework for you. And, and, I, and, I, and I do see the value of that. Um, to me, the more interesting part of the question is the, the second part of how it affects what we do in the vineyard. Um, and it does. Um, you know, if, if we have clients to whom the score is really important mm-hmm. or to whom consistency from year to year is more important than the absolute quality that you can get from that vintage, mm-hmm. we do things really differently. Yes. Um, and and we need to know ahead of time, you know, what those goals are. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, we when we talk about that style or direction of what what wine do you want to have out of your mm-hmm. vineyard, um, I've found myself um, tied up in saying, well, I don't know if if we're going to be getting our 100-point wine out of this vineyard oftentimes. I, I know it's a goal for a lot of people, um, but if it drives the farming discussions, um, sometimes that can be a you know, square peg and a round hole right. kind of problem. And um, so I think that could really, you know, I've had that trip me up before, 
I think more and more um, people are are looking at scores as as a as a complementary piece to their business. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, but I, I do know other people in our in our business that uh, you know their companies live or die by the scores. Right. And um, right. you know we all hear stories about oh so and so is not there anymore. They had a string of bad managers. Right. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, that that could have certainly affected someone's business for sure, or or a string of bad scores, maybe not a string of bad scores. Yeah, uh, that's the cover. We joked about like turning this question over to winemakers right at the beginning. Yeah, I think like a lot of things that, as much as we would like to say, here, fellas, this is yours, but uh, you know it feeds to, to the point of this question. It feeds back to us for sure. Um, does the scores mean everything? No. Do they mean more than they should? Maybe, possibly, depending on exactly when and where. But they are a, a framework, a, a language to speak in. If you know your reviewer, like you were saying, um, you know, there's there's information to be gleaned from those things. But they're probably not for the consumer. They're probably not the end-all, be-all, you know, righteous answer to things. For for us, it's uh, the world speaking about what they think of of what we do. You know, and it it definitely does find its way back to us, whether it's initially a brand, a label, a winemaker response first, but it, it, am, I, am I alone in thinking oh, it definitely makes its way back to us? It really yeah. finds its way back to us closer in the 80s, for sure. <laughs> Whatever, yeah. I mean, it, good or bad, it, it's, we're going to, uh, we're going to hear about it. Yeah. And, and an additional complication to it, and we, we have any number of situations where we've got multiple wineries buying grapes, not only from the same vineyard, but from the same vineyard block, mm -hmm. who may have entirely different winemaking goals. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. Good luck communicating that to the guys in the field. You know, we need to, we have to. Um, and, and it becomes kind of a real challenge and a real, you know, those are the things that I lose sleep over. Mm -hmm. You know, do, does Pedro know that row 12 through 40 goes to a completely different winery than row 41 through 50. Right. That's and we're going to do something very different. Yeah. yeah. You know, right. we're, we're going to treat the canopy entirely differently. Right. Um, and, and it flows back to the whole score and winemaking goal. Yep. Right. Yeah, what's really nice is, uh, you know, getting that, getting that desire, that wish list, what do we want out of this um, on day one? We can craft a program that gets us a lot closer. Or we can craft a program that gets us a lot farther away, and and that's um, it's it's hard to make those shifts. Uh, you know, unfortunately for us, I think there's a for everybody. This is wine, right? This is built into it, but there's a time delay, um, and so oftentimes we'll be doing something in a vineyard uh, three years prior, and all of a sudden it gets the accolades uh, three years later, and then um, you know, so so we don't quite see the result of those scores until right. until that bottle's uh, yeah. fully out. Years out. And you know, and so um, what's what I like about the scores is is remarkably um, a lot of our reviewers are fairly consistent, you know, mm -hmm. um, which is great. So right. you know that that to me gives confidence. I, I would check scores sometimes um, if it's easy, uh, if you have a subscription for that. Uh, but uh, to, to, you know, in advance of buying wine, but um, uh, it's just neat to work with some of these vineyards where all the producers are getting great scores, and, and that that's you know you, you can't have. You can't have that much data and say that, they're, that you're doing something wrong in that vineyard. Um, and so it's it can be extra validating when you're working with a property for 20 years that is consistently you know hitting high marks. Um, right. And 
and, and that's and you know that's a good vineyard and you know you have good winery partners in, in those uh, vineyards as well you know what you just heard everybody say is that it's a tool to be used wisely from a media perspective if i may and as someone that's judged wines you have to remember that um the critical part of it whether it's a famous individual individuals or citizen ones they taste a wine in the moment of time so it becomes about context um and you know, please take it as such, because if you judge the wine based upon somebody else's opinion who only spent, you know, maybe a few seconds, a few minutes with it, versus these guys that are obsessing over it for a year, that's a very different vantage point. And, you know, is it a perfect system? No. Is it functional? Yes, but use it wisely. Um, we have, like, the best audience, you guys. I'm so impressed with the questions. Whoever's <laughs> asking the questions... Can we talk about where that came from? Because I've been a yeah. fan of that sentence for a long time. I, we need to know who asked that question because it's, it's a wise one. Um, so it, it takes a lot of beer to make great wine. It takes a lot of blank to make great vineyard. You can want I, to take this can one. Can I interject this part first? I've always said it takes a lot of bad beer to make great wine. <laughs> so what would you insert as a blank? It takes a lot of great what to make a great vineyard. Uh, it's, for me, it's people uh, all day long. You know, this this is a uh, the the great wines that we make and the great vineyards we make are a distillation of of all the people's uh, hours that that go into it. And you know, I don't think there's there's obviously a lot of things to make a great vineyard out of it. But if you don't have the right people working there, um, it can be a big problem. Uh, and you don't have that right vision. Yeah, I think that's ultimately the right answer. But uh, I'm gonna go with footsteps. It takes a lot of footsteps to make a great vineyard. Um, the time and the effort we talked about earlier to, to, to you know pick the place out to design it to make all of those decisions to to, to create each one of those um, specific pieces every day through a vineyard that's all footsteps in a way and then and not sitting away in your desk and then drawing up protocols with the hip word right for uh, what I would call paint by number which I'm not a big fan of so footsteps for me and, and I'm going to agree with both of you, but I'm also going to say dirt. Yeah. Right. That, good point. There you go. <laughs> because, uh, because that's the one that we can't control. Right. Um, we, we've got, you know, some degree, whether it's imagined or real, control over the people piece. Mm -hmm. um, we've got control over the amount of time that we spend out there. The dirt's the dirt. And I think you can make a good vineyard out of a mediocre piece of dirt, but I don't think you can make a great vineyard out of it. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. It's, um, to me, it's always, uh, we can take a, a C vineyard to a B vineyard very easily. Mm -hmm. We can always take a B vineyard to an A vineyard, but an A to an A plus uh, has to come with those components. Yeah. Narrower margins, right? Yep, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to go backwards. I mean, we, I'm sure we can all, right, right. it might take another bottle or two, but we can all come up with a place that you know, has had a dirt and, and we did something to make it a beer seep in here. You know what I'm loving about this discussion is so much life philosophy that is weaved into every comment that you guys speak. So I'm going to um, ask a question that speaks to maybe my favorite subject, which is how the wine parallels human experience. <coughs> when I experience a wine that really is significant and interesting. I think of what it's like young versus what it's like in its teenage awkward stage and you know how it slowly starts decaying at some point and it's such a beautiful process. Would that same philosophy 
or supposition applied to a vineyard? Is there a human aspect? Is there a relational aspect? And what does it look and feel like? We'll start with Rob. Grapevines are they're living, breathing organisms, right? Mm-hmm. So they're they're alive. Um, I won't go as quite as far out to say they're sentient or have a soul, but they are living, breathing, live organisms like you and I and, and, and everything else. So I think some of the life arc or life path kind of parallels or are somewhat inherent to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, before putting a vineyard in, we talked a lot about that, but you know, that's going to take some pre-planning, hopefully. Uh, definitely some commitment. We talk about financial and time mm-hmm. commitment that way. Mm-hmm. Just like bringing a, a human life into the world, hopefully, would kind of require those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in, in a youth stage, in a young stage, they are fragile. They are not good at taking care of themselves. They <laughs> require, you know, a lot of, you know, daily, almost minute by minute input. And and to be honest, there's there's very little return for a long time. You know, much much like a child. Um, as time goes on, I think they get a little bit older, a little bit more independent, and they can they they're they're more apt to take care of themselves in a lot of ways and mediate their surroundings for their own benefit, if not survival. Um, they are still dependent on certain resources from the outside, certain inputs, but for the most part, they kind of you know they they live their life and then. And at that point, you're getting into a stage where, where hope and aspiration and, and what is this really going to be? You started with a plan. We talked about our plans for a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. We talked about how those plans don't always exactly come to fruition. But, you know, as, as these grapevines go in and then kind of in that youth stage are, you know, you can't help but have hope and aspiration. And what are they going to be? What is this going to turn out to be? And as they get a little bit older, you start to see hints of that mm-hmm. a little bit as they become independent. And then... You know, the, the independent stage, the, the productive stage, I guess we would call it in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. um, as that begins to fade and, and, and as grapevines get older and, and wear their age to some degree, um, you know, their, their frailties, their, their imperfections, their weaknesses start to kind of come to the forefront. And again, they require, you know, additional support and additional uh, care in that way. So um, I don't think it's far-fetched to say all of that kind of mirrors or echoes human life in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, I think there's there's definitely an aspect to to that parallel. There's that arc that you described so beautifully again, that continuum that I can't get enough of. Wow. How about you, Mike? Yeah, I, I, I think very similarly to what, what Rob said that you they, they have a you know, a beginning and a middle, and Garrett talked before about hoping they outlive us, and, you know, hopefully we don't see their end. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and as they develop, you know, again, it's that sense of control, that sense of being able to influence things, but really knowing that it's not. <laughs> Um, you know, that may, maybe you influence, maybe you push a little bit, but you're really an observer yeah. rather than a puppeteer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, you sort of nudge things in, in, in a direction as the vines grow older. 
hopefully you learn something every time you go out there, not, not just learn something every year, but that it's a, a process. Um, I mean, I'm big on talking about, you know, not only within a vintage, but over the course of the life of a vineyard, it's a process. It's not a series of events. You know, people tend to make a big deal out of harvest. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a big deal. You know, it, it's payday, but it's part of a process. You know, if you didn't prune, you don't get to pick. Um, if you didn't do your work properly during the summer, harvest doesn't happen. And everything that you do during that growing season affects the next growing season and the one beyond it and beyond it. So we need to always be thinking in terms of the the life of the vineyard, not, not the seasonality of it. Um, and you kind of watch that arc, that bigger arc, from a little bit of a distance. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think we, we wind up being so focused on the day-to-day, -day, yes. you know, that every once in a while it's nice to take that step back and say, geez, you know, you're not a little kid anymore. It's easy to lose the forest through the trees, right? Yeah. I tell people I do that yeah. I've asked something about, you know, whatever vintage four years ago and it, you know, any given vintage, even if it's an easy vintage, I feel like there's still daily battles, you're still working at it. Right. And so it's hard for me to say, oh yeah, 2011 had XYZ, whatever. But yeah, I think you're right. It's yeah, you know, a few years ago, a winemaker friend asked me, when did you get to the point where you could see the big picture? And I took that as a huge compliment. <laughs> you know, that I wasn't, you know, so tied up in the day-to-dayness yeah. and, and the worrying about, are you going to make it? Are you actually going to grow? Are you actually going to produce a crop this year? To, to having a sense that it is going to be fine. It, it may not be exactly what you want in any given year, but it's probably fine. Yeah. I would say that nobody's ever asked me when I first saw the big picture. And uh, I'll tell you right now, I'm not sure I have. You say that you took it as a compliment. I think, I think you should. It, it's, I'm not sure I've ever wrapped my brain around the big picture. I think I'm not necessarily stuck in the weeds, but, but still in the fight in a lot of ways. And, sure. And I bet yeah. that's, that, that big picture gets more to focus all the time, but I'm with you. I, I don't know that there's ever a time. I mean, that's part of this, this you know, great treadmill that we're on. We're always learning more about what we uh, should be doing in a vineyard and, and, and how to coax the things we want out of it um, and really work respectfully within that system. Um, but, you know, one day it comes into focus and then, then we got to retire. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I, just to go back to this, like, um, I've got a, something in the back of my mind. My, my vine physiology professor at UC Davis is like, I can hear him right now going like, don't anthropomorphize the vine. Totally <laughs> 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 I wanted to use that word and I was afraid to say it. Uh, right, right, right. It's a mouthful, right? So <laughs> congratulations for getting hard out. Um, you know, but it's, it's, I, I look at it as well just um, to, to go back to the 50,000 foot level, not just the vineyard that's in place, but uh, more about that site, you know. So, so as I work with a vineyard from that's, you know, existing in the 1800s, there was probably even a, a planting before that um, in that one vineyard or, or a bunch of replants that happened during that time. But, uh, but you know, 200, 300, 400 years from now, someone else is going to be working with that site. Uh, and I think that's, that's a cool thing. You know, we, we do 
owe, we, we do owe our success to uh, having a sustainable uh, piece of ground. And, um, you know, whether we're putting prunes on there, whether we're putting grapes on there, or we're putting some other agricultural crop, if we're not respecting, uh, you know, where the land is in that time, that, that's a big deal. That's a problem. Sure. Um, we're, we're not going to have any success there. So, you know, taking that long view approach of, um, you know, we're still just a blip on the radar, um, if you look at it that way, about what that piece of land is giving us. Um, you know, I think there's a, a, some more analogies to be had there. So you guys, we went really deep on you, like to the magma level in some respects, and also the opposite direction, looking up and taking a big picture. And, and the level of detail and the breadth of depth that this group around me has accumulated is really awe-inspiring. Um, they're clearly active participants in viticulture, agriculture, and you know are very, very good at it, to say the least. But the thing is, you're also a participant, whether you realize it or not. We're all really dependent on agriculture, and it's just a matter of cognition whether we realize it or not. So I want to ask everyone what that looks like for the consumer. What you know, you can play in that realm actively, should you choose to, or at least the awareness part should be there. What is everyone's thoughts about that? I, you know, um, increasing the awareness about uh, awareness about responsible farming, I think, is is a very important uh, piece of it. You know, I I, I think we're we're really good at making fantastic wines. We're really good at putting great products out there with consistency. Um, but you know, as farmers, we're, we tend to be fairly humble. Uh, we do a lot of great things. Um, we do a lot of great things that benefit our community. Uh, we do a lot of great things that we can always we can always improve on as well. And and I think um, you know that's that's something that you know I would like to see more people focus on uh, is getting that message about about how we farm and how we farm with a purpose and what it actually means uh, from a you know from from an interaction with our environment and uh, from a good stewardship standpoint. Uh, those are those are all things that we should be focusing on more. And more discussion Absolutely. about that. Yeah, I think more that discussion. Would be very healthy. Yeah. No, and and I think you know more. More understanding, you know, of of the value of, of agriculture and of, of and of responsible agriculture, because you know, the, and there shouldn't be a newsflash, you know, that without agriculture, it's not going to be national parks. That's right. Um, and for better or worse, whether people like commercial agriculture or not, we are really, you know, kind of at the root of preserving the land. That's right. Um, both, both by design and just by the nature of what we do. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that around here um, and in most vineyard situations around the world, Farmers are very, very cognizant of their environment and very careful about what we do. I think we all feel a sense of responsibility for the land, and at times it it can be a, a source of, of a lot of frustration um, to be demonized um, as as not having respect for the environment. I, I would argue pretty strongly that we're really preserving the environment. Absolutely. 
Yes, and you know, you're doing it actively daily. It's not rhetoric. It's not you get so emotional and panicky about preservation issues. No, and it's not. If it's not a project, and yeah. it's not something that we hold up to anybody. Mm -hmm. It's simply what we do. Right, and you know. The most direct thing you can do is obviously buy more wine, and I would strongly encourage you to do that. <laughs> um, but there's also that those pieces that we just covered, which is um, you know when you participate intellectually, when you ask questions, and maybe even redirect the conversation if it becomes trite and trivial, and really look at it as agriculture. If you buy agricultural products, you're a participant. So how do you make the world better for you? And if you do that, you will make it better for everybody. Yeah, I think uh, just to add to some of that, I mean, if, if you have a connection with where where your bell, uh, you know, your your uh, where your beans might be grown, where your bell pepper might be grown, where your wines are grown, um, if you've made a connection uh, there, I think that's that's something that every consumer could do more of. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I I see a lot of people uh, that you know might comment or might might be afraid of. Um, industrial agriculture or large-scale agriculture and, and they want to support uh, small operations and that's that's fantastic but an intimate knowledge of where your food comes from and where your wine comes from you know it's built into the product that we do I mean we're we're producing uh, a time and a place and a story uh, with our wines that we can share with people um, on a much smaller scale uh, you can do that with your own, own food as well but uh, understanding you know the process a little bit better is something we can all do better as consumers uh, and I think it, it, it raises that awareness. Um, I've never met a farmer who's who's out to, you know, make his land unsustainable. That's just not a thing, you know. And, and, and sometimes we get demonized as if that is. Um, you know, we have to be able to do business here. And to do that, we have to, uh, you know, take great stewardship of our most precious resource, which is the footprint that we're working with. Mm -hmm. And always consider the source. That's, I think, at the root of it all. If you're getting information in order to really validate it, find out where that information is coming from and what agenda they have. This is the pure sources I found for myself. So I'm fortunate enough to go to those and I'm sure they'll be really mad at me if I ask them if I could put their phone number at the bottom of the screen <laughs> so you can ask them too. So I won't do that. But if you guys really want to know, there's means to that as well. I mean, we could do another episode at your request. That's how you can participate. You can certainly write and let us know what you want to find out, and these are fantastic resources. But, uh, what's that third wine that we have there, the, uh, the Gibbs? Thank you, yes, so Gibbs um, Cabernet Sauvignon 2016, St. Helena, AVA. So that's what we're gonna be tasting as soon as our glasses are empty. Meanwhile, we'll um, switch to a fun question. And Come on now, they've all been fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, they heard it question. Mm -hmm. Um, so you were asked about the alternative profession. I want to go straight for it. If you were a varietal, if you were a vine, what vine would you be? And I want a detailed response, like, why that? Okay, so I had a gut reaction to this. <laughs> talked about it. I had a gut reaction and I said, no, I'm not going to do that. So I tried to come up with a better answer. And, and I failed in that, so I'm going to go back to my gut reaction, right? And that, so you got your, your old, Craggy Zinfandel line. That's something actually that I, that I deal something with grotesque. very little, but but old, persnickety, twisted, mm -hmm. somewhat broken, um, visibly angry kind of Zinfandel line <laughs> in a lot of ways. And I will own it, I will learn, and I will say that, so, you know, it, it's going to be somewhat unpredictable. 
can be kind of a pain in the ass for most things to get anything done. But uh, if you continue to fight it and you continue to work with it, um, hopefully the results are worth it. So I, that is the first thing that popped in my head when we started no, talking about that question. And, and I fought it and I, I thought about trying to come up with something better and, and less totally honest. But uh, no, I think that for me that I'm sure there's lots of people, I don't know if anyone's watching, but that would attest to me being somewhat like that. <laughs> All right. I appreciate the candor. Love it. Hey, if you're going to do it, you might as well do it. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of changing my response now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Should I give you more time? No, no, no. <laughs> Mike can go next. This is good. Um, I thought about it more in, in terms of wine mm -hmm. than, than of, of the vineyard or the vines and mm -hmm. the way they grow. Um, so, how about Petit Syrah? Aha. Uh -huh. Um, that's it. kind of, you know, what you see is what you get. Um, that can be a little bit off-putting at the beginning. Um, and, and over time, it really kind of comes around. It's <laughs> <laughs> good. It grows I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Mm. To me, Petit Sarai is big and bold <laughs> and, and assertive and just very fundamental. Like, you know, it's not, it's not screwing around. That's what I was right. You there you go. It's got to be cap for me, but I was I was thinking about, um, I know that's super boring, of course. So no, they, of course, not. I'm a vine that lived in Napa. Um, but I was thinking like, yeah, how would I be trained? Uh, I'd be, I'd probably be a cool old head trained uh, vine that, you know, much like you were talking about, um, looks a little gnarly around the edges, and <laughs> but still gets you what you need. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting, you know, I, I uh, it's that same anthropomorphism. Oh, I thought you got me. Anthropomorphizing a vine uh, going on here. What would I be? Um, you know, I, 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 like, um, I like a little bit of diversity in a way. Um, I was thinking another question I was asked at one point, if I could make one wine anywhere in the world, you know, what, what would it be? Um, and I'd pick something totally random. You know, it'd be some, some uh, you know, relatively native grapevine and some island in Greece somewhere, um, you know, that nobody pronounces anymore. And there's like one guy who's got 10 vines of it in his yard, right. you know. Um, you just want to be you. You just want to be me. Like, and, and, and you know, <laughs> in a way, um, you know, we're, we're very quick to, to make a lot of wines out of, you know, uh, uh, basically what is 15 different varieties, if I had to guess. Um, and uh, there's a lot of really cool stuff out in the world. A lot of really cool, uh, just genetic variation between what we call Vitus vinifera, and um, not to mention all the hybrids, you know, uh, that the rest of the folks in our country are are, are planting. Um, but there's there's just so much opportunity here. Uh, but I would be a very unique vine if I could be one. <laughs> very cool. Such a good answer. Um, so we all talked about growing the vines and the wine and the vineyard, but Talk about drinking for just a second. It's really, we get to do that now in real time, but let's talk about what you drink at home. Um, I would love for each one of you highlight a bottle or bottles or a period of time when we happen across something that was mind-bending and it just so stayed. Something mind-changing, life-changing, something soulful. Highlight something that spoke to you in your wine-consuming journey. Good question. 
who's going first on this one? <laughs> and, uh, I was going to say, I'm I, loving I, the wine yeah, I'm with. I, but, I, I will say that. So yeah. I got married about five years ago, and quickly in that kind of marriage planning process, uh, I decided that at, at the wedding there would be no wines that I was involved in. It just it seemed like it was cheating the process. It wasn't any fun. Just it wouldn't it wouldn't be it wouldn't be uh, right for that day to kind of mix business and pleasure that way. But uh, I have a dear friend who I'm not going to plug him, but he makes wines up in Oregon. Um, and I talked to him and said, "Look, let's just pour your wines at my wedding." And it was it was when I realized that in drinking and enjoying wines, there has to be a separation between college work and having fun. And uh, you know, the day I got married, everyone says you can't have fun at your own wedding. I, I won't lie, I had a great time at my own wedding, and, and part of that was I, I wasn't worried how the lines were tasting because they weren't mine. They weren't, I wasn't involved in them. It was somebody else's and it was fun. And I also saw and understood and, and felt his wines differently that day because of the stage on which they were being played out that day, my wedding day. So that's uh, that, that will always be one of my seminal wine days, I guess. Perfect. Mike? I guess I'm probably going to say some etude cabernets from the late 90s very cool tony soder tony soder awesome um makes wines in oregon and it was an opportunity you know kind of coincidentally to get to know tony and learn from him you know and, and work together for for a few years um and really kind of gave me a, a lot of insight about what what great cabernet vineyards could be you know and how to translate that dirt into into that tool for the winemakers thank you oh boy <laughs> we like all of us we drink a lot of wine generally i mean That's every, I um, the, yeah. the most memorable wine is the one in front of you always That's you right. know that's just the thing um you got to have wine open uh, often uh, as long as you can handle it and, and, and i think that's important um i've always had some memorable times uh, tasting wines um nothing is better than uh you know a, a friend of mine's wine that you you can open up on a nice warm afternoon and realize the care and and effort that's gone into that and you can help support somebody that that you know and, and have a good relationship with and um, you know, for me, there's this sense of community with all the wines that we get to work with. Um, a little bit different than Rob. I, I kind of like mixing that business with, um, you know, supporting people, uh, which is good. But, um, you know, every single wine is, is very memorable to me, uh, even the bad ones, uh, you know. And I think that's part of, uh, as a good taster and a good consumer, somebody who really wants to learn about wine, um, you gotta you got to put yourself through uh, some, some wines you don't like. Um, you know, and that's, in a way, that's just as memorable. Um, why do I like this or why do I not like that? Um, but if I had to pick one great wine that, that resonates with me, uh, it's a wine that I screwed up uh, when I was in, in Davis. We got to taste all these fantastic uh, um, old, old, old Bordeaux vintages that were in the Jacobson locker uh, when they were moving the winery. And, um, and nobody knew what year it was. Uh, we just signed 18 on it. And the rest was all basically... Um, you know, um, molded off, and um, so something from the 1800s. It was absolutely terrible. Um, it was soy sauce, and everything about it was wrong, right? Mm -hmm. But but you pop that wine, and you said, I don't really know what I'm tasting. Um, this is just fantastic. That here's something that's been in the bottle for a hundred, at least 115 years or more, um, and it's still 
you know, and I can still pull a cork out of it, and I can still get something from it, and it's not poisonous, and it's not, you know, it's just memorable. Um, and, and I wish I could have just spent a little bit more time thinking about that. And, and if there's one moral of the story for me, which is just take time with the wine that you have, um, you know, just do a deep dive into it. And uh, when you when you get to know the people around these wines, you get to, uh, uh, you know, have them in your home, have have a meal with them. Um, it makes every wine that much more special. Thank you. Yeah. Phenomenal answers. And um, I really hate to end this discussion because I've learned a ton. I want to thank Katie from Feasted Forward for facilitating this beautiful gathering. I want to thank each and every one of you for being here with me today. And I never thought I'd be saying this sitting with three men, but I'm going to channel my inner Bridget Jones and I'll say, I have now a bit of a crush, really. <laughs> I hope you do too. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Palette Exposure featuring Alona Thompson. We'll see you again next week.